around Christmas time, and so sometimes our emotions can be deceiving. Uh, our emotions sometimes have more to do with thoughts of the past and warm and fuzzies, which are fine. The Lord has made us as emotional creatures, but uh, we need to recognize where these emotional movements are coming from. And I pray for all of us that they are coming from affection for the Lord as we give him praise through these glorious songs and texts. Our passage for this morning is going to be Exodus 32, verses 15 to 24. Over these last few weeks, we've been looking at one of the great low points in biblical history. This is one of the great sewer moments uh, in the lives of God's people. This is the story of the golden calf. As I've said, a famous story, one that uh, even if you don't have much knowledge of the Bible, you probably have heard about or at least uh, seen in movies, documentaries, uh, older films, pictures, you've, you've heard of this, you've seen this story displayed. Here we are at Mount Sinai, that is the scene. God has rescued his people and he has entered into a covenant relationship with them, a binding agreement, a, a contract based on his faithfulness, based on his promises. He has entered into this covenant with Israel and Israel has said, all that you command us, we will do. We will obey your word. And God has delivered his word, encapsulated in the ten words or the ten commandments. He has delivered those so clearly in such grandeur and power and majesty on the mountain, in fire, with thunder, before the very eyes and ears of the people. Now Moses has been up on the mountain with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, but this has been too long for the people. This was God's plan. 40 days and 40 nights was part of what the Lord wanted for Moses as he went up to prepare Moses' heart to receive all that the Lord revealed to him. To, to have an understanding of the tabernacle that Moses would then go back down the mountain and lead in the, in the construction of. But this is too long for the people. They are impatient, discontent. They are fearful. So they ask Aaron to make gods for them, and he fashions a calf out of gold. This is just emanating with Egyptian religion. This is uh, the past. This is where they came from. This was the world that they were in, and probably Canaanite elements as, as well, Egyptian and Canaanite elements sort of mixed together here. But they ask Aaron to make gods for them, and then they say, gods who will go before them. They've seen the Lord go before them in a cloud by day, and a fireball by night, but they want something they can see. And so Aaron fashions this golden calf, this golden bull. Now, their worship, their trust, their attention and affection has moved to this metal idol. It has moved away from the Lord and it has moved to this thing, this metal thing. One of the things that I find so interesting about the golden calf story is how full of theology it is. It is packed with doctrine. It is packed with theology. The title 
for the sermon last week was intercession and grace. And we have seen so much theology just in the last few sermons, the last couple sermons as we've come to this chapter. Human sinfulness, divine grace, Christ as mediator. We get vivid pictures of these doctrines in this chapter. While the people are lost in idolatrous revelry at the foot of the mountain, God communicates his just wrath to Moses on the top of the mountain. He will destroy the people and build a new Israel out of Moses. Now, you you read that he will destroy the people and we know that that simply cannot happen. God cannot destroy the people. He will not, is a better way to say that. He will not destroy the people because he is faithful. And God cannot contradict his nature. He is faithful. And he promised Abraham that he would build a great nation. And that they would move into the land. The land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sojourned in. And so we know that God will not destroy The nation, but he tells Moses that he will build the nation through him. In essence, Moses will become a new Abraham. And yet, as we read that, we know that God's ultimate intention is to graciously spare the people through the intercession of Moses. So we get a subtle invitation at the beginning of verse 10. So listen for it closely. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now, it's really interesting. We read those words. We we would expect that the Lord would simply say, my wrath is burning hot against them, and I will consume them. But he says to Moses, let me alone, leave me alone, that this may happen. It's amazing. It is a subtle invitation not to leave God alone. It is a subtle invitation letting Moses know, hint, hint, at this moment, if you intercede for the people, if you act as a mediator for the people, a go-between, a priest-like figure, I will hear your prayer, I will hear your plea, and I will not consume them. I will not let my wrath burn hot against them. It is an invitation to Moses. This was God's plan all along. And as we talked about last week, none of this took God by surprise. It is all part of his plan. And, and I find it fascinating that it actually brings great meaning to the tabernacle. It's, it's only after an event like this that the, all of the atonement rituals associated with the tabernacle and all of the emphasis on consecrating Aaron from his defilements really makes sense. It's only after an event like the golden calf that the weightiness of God's holiness and human sinfulness and the need for atonement comes into view. All of this is part of God's sovereign purposes. So Moses selflessly turns away from any opportunity to be a new patriarch, all of the allurement of being a new Abraham offers nothing for Moses. And instead, he pleads with the Lord to spare the people. But 
as we saw last week, he does not plead on the basis of any merit in the people. Moses says nothing about the people and their intentions. He says nothing about their motivations. He gives no excuse for the people. Well, Lord, you just brought them out of Egypt. I mean, it hasn't been long. You know, they lived there for so long, and it was just seeping into their pores. God, I have been gone for a while. I mean, it's been almost 40 days or however long it's been before they started this scheme. Moses does none of that. He doesn't plead. He doesn't intercede based on the righteousness of the people. He doesn't marginalize, decrease. He doesn't make light of their sin. He leans into God's nature. They deserve death, and Moses knows it. They deserve to be destroyed, and Moses knows it. But he pleads on behalf of God's saving purposes, his glorious reputation, his mercy, and his promises. In other words, Moses says to the Lord, Lord, you can't do this because of who you are. You can't do this, God, because of what you are about. Not because the people, they aren't so bad. It's because of who God is. Moses pleads into God's character and will. Uh, Let me just say this to us about prayer. I think this is really significant as we think about the nature of Christian prayer. Our prayers, in order to be anything remotely like this, have to be infused with the knowledge of God. There is no piety and relationship with God in prayer apart from knowledge of God. It seems to me that in some circles, this kind of ignorance of of the Bible and ignorance of doctrine is somehow a virtue. That there's this kind of pietism that it's really just superficial and it's just about me and my relationship with Jesus. And it's really not about head knowledge. And so you get a lot of beating up on head knowledge. There's sort of head knowledge versus heart knowledge. And somehow these things, are they belong in different buckets. What we see here is that all of this heart impulse toward God, all of this relating to God is born out of a deep knowledge of who God is. It's born out of a deep knowledge of God's attributes, his character, and his will. Moses understands what God is about, and he prays into that with that knowledge on behalf of the people. Last week, we ended with verse 14. It says this, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God hears and God relents. And I think that's another indication that this was the Lord's will all along, as we know already, is that once Moses delivers this eloquent, theologically rich intercessory prayer, if you will, to the Lord, the Lord says, okay, And he relents. But that doesn't mean that God will not punish his people. 
it doesn't mean that he will not confront their sin. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Evil Confronted, Part 1. You'll see that up here on the screen, Evil Confronted, Part 1. We've had construction at the foot of the mountain, down at the base. We've had construction. We've seen conversation at the top of the mountain. And now we come to confrontation as the two meet. What's going on at the top of the mountain meets what's going on at the bottom of the mountain in our passage for today. And today we will look at the first part of this confrontation. And we will finish it up next week as we lean towards Christmas with another emphasis on Moses as mediator. And then let me also just give, give everyone a sense for where we're headed in the coming weeks. So my plan is to finish the golden calf story next week and then to spend Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year. And so we'll spend Christmas Eve in the morning and in the evening at our Christmas Eve service looking in detail at John chapter 1 verse 14. And that verse says this, just as a little anticipator, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I just love that because what we have been looking at all along really is a type of the incarnation. As we've been talking about the tabernacle, and then now we're looking at the great need for the tabernacle among the people. We come to John 1.14 and we read that Jesus, that the word tabernacled among us. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. This one who tabernacled among us and this one who would then become later the atonement for our sins. So I pray for us as a church this Christmas, that so much of what we find in the gospel about the incarnation and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus would just take on new force and new meaning as it comes out of what we've looked at in the tabernacle. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. So we're in chapter 32. Our our text for today is 15 to 24, but I'm going to go ahead and read all of this evil confronted section, verses 15 to 35, but we'll look at the latter part next week. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing... Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, it's unclear 
to what extent there was maybe some wood involved in the construction of the golden calf. We're not given those details. We know it involves gold, whether it's all the way gold, solid gold, or uh, gold leaf over a wooden object. We're not told those details, but this is what Moses does to it. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Hmm. Verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of his son and of his brother. So that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. You can go ahead and be seated. We see here at beginning with Moses' confrontation with the people. In the final verse there, verse 35, God sends a plague. So this entire section really hangs together as evil confronted. So let's pray to the Lord and ask for his grace. Sovereign God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we humbly come into your presence. and I just think about what a weighty thing it is to pray to you here in corporate worship on behalf of this gathered people. God, what an honor, what a privilege, and what a, what a trembling thing, Lord. Lord, you are holy, you are just, and we are sinful. Lord, we praise you that through Christ you have reckoned us righteous. And Lord, not only have you legally transferred our status from guilty to innocent, not only have you legally transferred Christ's righteousness to our account and our sin to him at the cross, but Lord, you have graciously 
filled us with your Holy Spirit. You are changing us. You have changed us and you are changing us, Lord. And we praise you that that though we are sinful, you have given us new hearts. We fear you from the inner man, from the inner being. We fear you. We love you. We delight in your will and in your presence. God, what a wondrous thing that you would save people like us in that way. Lord, and to think that what awaits us is pure, unadulterated glory. That we will be like our Savior. Perfectly spotless. No bad intentions. No malicious thoughts. No selfishness. No envy. No pride. No greed. No lust. Lord, we will be like Christ. We praise you, Lord, that Jesus has come, that he has died in our place as a substitute for our sins, and that he was raised. And Lord, because he was raised, we one day too will be raised. And as Paul says, we will forever be with the Lord. God, we have much to rejoice in this morning and celebrate God, so lift our hearts up. Regardless of what we are facing, regardless of our worries and our past struggles and fears for the future. And Lord, the sins that we came in here with this morning. Lord, help us to confess and turn and to delight in you, the God of our salvation. Lord, we pray for your grace as your word is preached and heard. We pray that you would make our hearts soft Lord, that we would all sit under your word and that our hearts would be malleable in your hands, Lord, that they would be flexible and movable. Lord, that there would be none among us who is stiff-necked. We pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things. Two things to look at this morning as this confrontation gets underway. And this is just the first part of it. We'll see, uh, we'll finish it up next week. But two things. First, we have the destroying and then the dodging. So the destroying happens, verses 15 to 20. And then we get the dodging in verses 21 to 24. So let's look first at the destroying. And for that, we're going to reread verses 15 to 20. So here they are. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. This is a dramatic scene. I can only imagine what this would have been like. This is one man uh, standing against two million people. 
And we see here Moses' actions on behalf of the Lord. We'll come back to the stone tablets in a moment, but for now we need to see that Moses meets back up with Joshua. You may have forgotten about this figure. He'll become very large in the biblical narrative in due course, but he meets back up with Joshua. Joshua is Moses' assistant who had gone up on the mountain with him. Moses, uh, you may remember, entered the glory cloud, so they both go up. Remember, there's the people down at the base Then there's 70 elders, Aaron, Nadav, and Abihu, uh, up about halfway with Moses and Joshua. And there the Lord appears to them. They have this covenant meal on behalf of the people. And then Moses and Joshua proceed to go up the mountain to the top. Joshua hangs back a little ways and Moses goes into the glory cloud. Now, this is important to notice. Two things about Joshua. The first thing is that Joshua is not impatient. He has faithfully waited. Now there's a contrast here. We're meant to pick up on that. The people down below, by the way, who will not inherit the promised land, the people down below have been greatly impatient. And yet they've had all that they've needed. They've had community They've had the food that they needed. They've been living daily life in the camp. All they had to do was just wait. Just wait. Joshua, by contrast, has been camping out by himself all alone. You could say if anyone among the people has any right, though that would be ludicrous, to be a little impatient, it would be Joshua, not the people. But here we see no hint at all of Joshua's impatience. We also have in this a pointer towards the conquest. Joshua is shielded. And you could say it this way. Joshua is the only person who is shielded entirely from the golden calf incident apart from Moses. He's the only one. He's the only one who's not there. Now that's not to say that every single Israelite down to the last man was gung-ho about the golden calf. It is to say that Joshua is entirely absent. Zero culpability for Joshua. And that, of course, is a preparation for him being Moses' successor. God will use Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. And he will use Joshua to bring them into the promised land. Now, these two have reunited, and they are headed back down the mountain, but there's a loud noise. And we don't know at what point they begin to hear this, probably already immediately hearing it, but they begin to hear this loud noise. And Joshua, being the warrior, imagines a battle scene. Remember, Joshua had already led the Israelites in battle once, And he will lead the Israelites in many battles in the future. But Joshua imagines a battle scene down below. In fact, it sounds a little bit like what he had heard before. This loud ruckus, this loud noise. And Moses, having been informed by God of what's going on, quickly corrects him. He says, no, Joshua, that is the sound of singing. It's not the sound of, hey, we won the battle. 
And it's not the sound of, oh no, we're being defeated. It is the sound of celebratory worship. It is the sound of singing. That's what's happening down in the camp. And the fact that the singing could be mistaken for battle cries just goes to show how wild this idolatrous, this idolatrous worship had become. We are meant to understand this as unrestrained evil. And in fact, when Moses sends out the Levites with the sword, it will be in the immediate, it will be because the people have just broken out. They've lost all control. This is a wild affair. And we've talked about already the extent to which there was some sort of sexual practices involved here and, and the, the, the verb to play that they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And we really just don't know the extent to which that is playing out. But we know that they are dancing and they are loud enough to where Joshua, who has experienced mass battle, would say it sounds like there's a battle going on down at the base of the mountain. This is unrestrained evil. So what happens when Moses gets down to the people? What happens when Moses gets to the bottom of the mountain? Well, the spotlight falls first on the tablets of stone. When we think about holy objects, few things can top these tablets of stone that Moses brings back down the mountain. As you think about In the history of God's people, all those things that are holy, all those objects that are holy, this is pretty close to the top of the list. Remember that this is the express reason why Moses went up the mountain in the first place. Now, we we may think that Moses went up the mountain to get the instructions for the tabernacle, and that is true. That's what we've been talking about all this time. But the stated reason, the stated purpose for Moses to go up the mountain is to get the Ten Commandments inscribed or engraved on stone tablets. So we read this back in chapter 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So on these stones are written the Ten Commandments. These are the Ten Words. And they serve as the foundational covenant documents. You think about a contract where you have a signature and and you have one that you keep and then one that the other person keeps. That's what's going on here. You have one stone was Israel's copy and the other stone was the Lord's. Both parties of this covenant or contract are given a copy. And Moses is intent here to highlight the preciousness of these stones. You notice by how much, how much language, how many words he gives to the, their description. Verses 15 to 16. With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Look at all of the language that Moses gives to describing these items. Moses wants his readers to have no doubt as to how sacred and special these tablets are. 
you could summarize everything that Moses says in this way. They are from God. They are from God in every way. Constructed by God. Engraved by God. And they have on them God's word. Entirely from God. So, we are meant to be in shock when we read this in verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The weight of that is really not felt if you don't read what's prior to that. Moses is setting that up. Do you see that? He's describing these tablets as, as being precious and being from God. He's describing them as these holy objects and then he breaks them. We're meant to be in a state of shock. You're meant to go, oh, no one's done that, but I know you're doing it inside, in your heart. You know, growing up as a kid in church, I always saw this a little negatively. You know, as I've, I've been in church my entire life since I was three years old, and I've heard this story many times. And growing up in church, I always saw this story in a negative, this, well, of course, this whole story, but this particular incident with the breaking of the tablets, I had always, as a child, seen this negatively. Moses lost his temper, right? And he broke these special objects. Surely he should have carefully set them down before blasting the people, right? But the Lord forgives him, of course, because, you know, it's, it's a terrible situation. And, uh, but Moses really shouldn't have done that. He really shouldn't have smashed these, these precious tablets. I mean, how could you do that? And, and maybe you've thought that way, too. Up to this point, that has been maybe your, your viewpoint. Well, no. No. To think that way is to miss the entire context of this narrative. It is to miss what's been happening, what is happening, and what is about to happen. What Moses does is good and right. It is good and right. It is fitting for Moses to smash those tablets. This is a symbolic act of what has already happened. We need to understand that. That's what we need to see. Moses is, through God's providence, he is symbolizing what has occurred in the larger story. The people have broken the covenant to such a degree that it is fully within God's rights based on the terms of the covenant to utterly destroy the people. To utterly wipe the people off the face of the earth. The breaking of the tablets demonstrates what the people have already done. They have grievously broken God's law. They have broken these tablets. You know, you can imagine a situation where you just defy the Lord and break maybe the, the fourth, fifth, sixth commandment. Maybe the 10th commandment. Of course, that one's being broken all the time in people's hearts. But this is an outright treason against the covenant Lord. This is an outright treason against the king. This is an outright rebellion. The very first two commandments have been utterly smashed 
by the people. So in truth, the tablets have already been broken by Israel. Also, we are meant to view Moses' anger as righteous. And once again, you might be tempted to think, you know, Moses has just lost his temper. He's just, just flying off, yelling, screaming, throwing stuff, smashing stuff. He's just an angry guy. That's, that's, that's not the way we are to read this story in its context. And it's understandable that we would read it that way. As I said before, this was the way I always took it. That This is an angry moment. You know, he's lost his temper. He's gotten mad. And it makes sense on the surface to read it in that way. But we are meant to see this as righteous indignation from the covenant mediator. That's what's going on. Remember who Moses is. He's the mediator of the covenant. He's the one who stands between Yahweh and the people. This is the righteous indignation of the covenant mediator. It's similar to the image of Jesus when he cleanses the temple. As he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. The money goes flying everywhere and he's whipping the animals to get them out of there. He's telling everyone, get out of here. Zeal for the Lord's house. Had consumed him. Zeal for the Lord's glory here has consumed Moses. This is righteous indignation on behalf of that glory. This is not the product of Moses' own frustration or some personal offense. And we know that that's where a lot of our anger comes from, right? It comes from our own personal sort of inconvenience. We get inconvenienced. Things don't go the way we want them to, and we begin to get angry, whatever that looks like or feels like for you. We begin to get angry when we have personal offense. We feel as though someone has, has moved in on us, someone has offended us, someone has, has made us feel small or whatever it might be. This is not the case at all. Moses simply does not have himself in view. And, and you know, let me just say this to us. How radically would that transform the church of Jesus Christ in every local church if we just, in all of our interactions with one another, just simply did not have self in view? How, how, how many conflicts would be done away with? How much reconciliation and forgiveness and love and peace and joy there would be if we simply just moved ourselves out of the picture And we're just simply concerned with God's honor. The honor of his great name. Now, the spotlight moves. The spotlight moves from the tablets to the golden calf. The idol. Verse 20 says, He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel Drink it. Now, it is, hard, it is not hard for us to understand why Moses would destroy the idol. If Moses was, if, if he were coming down the mountain and he had to create a checklist of things to do when he got down to the bottom of the mountain, probably number one on the checklist would be destroy idol. Right? That, that's easy for us to understand, that he destroys the idol. This would be the natural first thing to do. But why does he have the people drink it? That's a little strange to us. It's hard for us to 
wrap our heads around. And I think there are several things in view here. I don't think it's simple enough to just say this is it. I think there are several things in view here. So first, the pouring in water and drinking is a further sign of destruction. And this seems to be the emphasis of Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 21. So it says there, this is where Moses recounts the story of the golden calf incident. He says there, then I took the sinful thing. He calls the golden calf a sinful thing. I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. I mean, he obliterated that thing. He pulverized that thing. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. So the imagery here is that it is utterly destroyed, it is pulverized, and then it is carried away. It's like something being swept. You think of something, a glass object being broken. It's all over the place. There's little pieces of it. It's terrible. And, you know, especially when you have little kids, their little feet. You know, you got to go looking for all the little shards and you got like a radius of like 15 or 20 feet. You really got to go out far. All those little pieces. The imagery here is that every speck of, of this thing is dealt with. Every speck of this thing is carried away from the people, carried away from this holy people or this people who is supposed to be holy. So it's part of the destruction imagery. Second, and connected to the first, the idea of consuming the idol points to its later defecation. I think that has to be in view here. And, and, and here's what I'm saying. This is a God that can be eaten and then turned into waste. That's what this is, right? What a contrast with the Lord. What a contrast with this unseen God who has spoken in mighty power, has brought all of this destruction on Egypt, has carried his people, has rescued them and provided for them, saved them in so many ways. This this God who so much is, as he says, At the burning bush, contrasted with this defecated thing, this defecated, sinful, powdery thing. It's an image of its worthlessness. Third, the people receive this sinful thing into themselves, the very thing by which they have been corrupted. It is an expression of guilt and shame. They are drinking into themselves the very thing that came out of themselves. As Jesus said, all sin comes out of the heart. The problem with the people is the heart. The calf is a produce of the heart. And that's the thing we need to recognize this morning is we may not have these golden calves in our lives, but what's in the heart What's pouring out of the heart that we're bowing down to rather than the Lord? They are drinking it into themselves as a symbol of their guilt. And fourthly, it seems that there is some connection between this drinking incident and the subsequent killing by the Levites. As with Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 31, in the case of an adulterous woman, this may have had the effect 
of sickening those responsible for leading this rebellion. In other words, as we, as we read there in Numbers 5, uh, what, what is present in this drink becomes then a curse to those who led in this rebellion, to those most guilty in this entire incident. And that might explain those whom the Levites go out to kill, that those who have been affected by the drinking of this pulverized idol in the water, it's now manifest in their body. They bear the culpability in illness or sickness, and the Levites are able to determine as they go out who to strike. So perhaps that is part of what is going on. All of this highlighting the grievous nature of this sin. And that brings us, secondly, to the dodging. So we've seen the destroying. Now we come to the dodging. Look with me at verses 21 to 24. And Moses said to Aaron, Why did this people do to you? What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Out came this bull. After addressing the people in general, Moses then turns to Aaron in particular. Remember, this is Moses' brother. This is his brother. This is the one who had stood side by side with Moses as they stood before Pharaoh together in the ten plagues. Remember, it was Aaron initially who was the speaker. He was like the prophet. Moses was like God. and Aaron was like the prophet. That was the way God had communicated it to Moses. They had stood together. But here we see Moses confronts him directly. Verse 21. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Now notice Moses' emphasis here as he addresses Aaron. Aaron has led the people into sin. Even though they initiated this sin... Aaron's role as a leader demanded that he put an end to it, but he didn't. Instead, as Moses says here, he himself has brought a great sin upon the people. It's a little surprising. I mean, we see Aaron's guilt, but it's a little surprising. The people have brought sin upon Aaron, right? Well, yeah, there's truth to that, but notice that's not what Moses says. He says to Aaron that he has brought such a great sin upon the people. Aaron has done a grievous thing to the people with the golden calf. And I think this speaks to the great responsibility of leaders. As we think about leaders within the church of Jesus Christ, what a great responsibility leaders have among God's people. And for leaders, we need to see this in particular, that the culpability is present even where 
initiation is absent. Do you see that? Culpability is present, even where initiation is absent. This started with the people. They brought this to Aaron. And yet Aaron is nonetheless guilty for bringing this sin on the people. I think this also helps us all understand that elders within a church make decisions with great weight. And I think it also encourages the congregation to recognize that as elders within a local church are making decisions, it is simply the case that there will be decisions that we make as elders here in this local church that are not popular. Decisions that are not uh, amenable. uh, Decisions that do not make this individual comfortable or this individual happy or, or this group of individuals very happy. And it is part of the burden of that responsibility. It's part of the burden of that leadership to lead out in courage before the face of God. Leaders must have courage to say no. And it is difficult when you are in a church and you are on the other end of no. It is always difficult to be on the other end of no. But leaders must have the courage to say no. As they defend the honor of the Lord, as they defend the integrity of the worship service and of God's people, as they care for the flock of God among them, the the entire church with all of its collective interest packaged into one, leaders must have courage to say no, even when it brings great opposition. It is also important to recognize this language of great sin. This language of great sin is important. It can be traced back to Genesis chapter 20, verse 9, where it says this, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So what is my point? Why do I bring in that passage? Well, this word great sin, I don't want to say it's a technical term, but it is sort of a term, uh, it is sort of a technical term for adultery. And you see this, and we talked about that when we were going through that passage in Genesis, uh, but it is, it is a word associated, it's an idea, great sin, it is an idea associated with adultery. And what it does in this context is it connects idolatry to adultery. As one commentator puts it, what happens in the golden calf incident is somewhat akin to adultery on one's wedding night. Now that's unthinkable. I mean, that's appalling. That's horrendous. Adultery on one's wedding night. Not even waiting till you get home. On the wedding night. 
That is what Israel does in this moment, right on the heels of God's covenant with his people, right on the heels of God entering into this binding union with his people, with his bride, we could say. As we think about the fulfillment of that in Christ and the church, these are, this is the bride of the living God cheating on him on the wedding night. That's what Aaron did. That's what Aaron was involved in. That's what Aaron brought upon the people. So how does Aaron respond? Well, one word, and it is the title for this point, dodging. He admits to the facts of the case. He does tell Moses what happened. You go back and look at it. He admits to the facts of the case. The people came here. They said this and so on and so forth. I asked for the earrings. He admits to the facts of the case, but he relieves himself of responsibility. Yes, he describes what happened, but he deflects in two ways. And this is where we'll finish up this morning. First, by blaming the people. Look at verse 22. You know the people that they are set on evil. Well, of course that's true. Of course that's true. And Aaron here referring to the previous acts of the people in their grumbling. But although there is truth to this, it does not relieve Aaron of responsibility for his sin. And it's interesting here, right after the, the, the fall, we get this very same thing with Adam. And you all know this, what Adam does when the Lord confronts him. You know, Aaron should have fallen on his face, confessing his sin before my, I sinned grievously, Moses. Calling out to Yahweh. What about Adam in the garden? Genesis 3, verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The first days of marriage after being expelled from the garden were probably not good at all. I mean, here is, is Adam saying, it's this, it's this woman that you gave me, this woman that you made, she, she ruined me, God. It's exactly what Aaron is saying here, this paradigmatic story of the golden calf, which is really a rehearsal of the fall. Here in this very same story, we get Aaron playing the role of Adam. Here we need to understand that we are looking in a mirror. It is easy for us to read these stories and think, oh yeah, that was Aaron, and, and that was then, and that's how it happened. But we need to understand that we are looking in a mirror. As we consider our propensity in the flesh is always to dodge and deflect. That's what the flesh does. Now, the mortal body that we carry around, we are in Christ and we have the Spirit and we delight in the law of God in the inner man, as Paul says in Romans 7, 22. But we carry around this flesh, this mortal body, and we're not to sow to the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians 5. We're to sow to the Spirit. But when we do sow to the flesh, we reap death. And part of the death that we reap is this dodging and deflecting of blame, not really dealing with our own sin. Second, 
Aaron offers this nonsensical explanation that the calf just popped out of the fire. He says, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It is almost as though Aaron is saying, I only touched the earrings. I just touched the earrings. I I took the earrings, I just sort of threw the earrings, not, not, not the calf, the earrings into the fire, and then there was a calf thing on the other end. But but really, I was just messing with jewelry. It's like that's what he is saying. You know, he does leave out a very important verb. He fashioned it. He doesn't say anything about that. He's pictured here as just sort of taking a a wheelbarrow of of earrings over to a fire and just sort of dumping them in and then walking away. All the people. All the people. In other words, I really haven't had anything to do with this calf. We need to understand this. This is the irrational extent to which we will defend ourselves. And listen, this is what we do far more than we think. In our own hearts. And by the way, it starts in here. It starts in our minds. It doesn't start in our, in our bedroom with our wife or our husband. It doesn't start as we're engaging with our kids in the car or at home. It doesn't start as we interact in meetings with people at our work or here in church. It starts in our minds. We rationalize our sin. We put the best view on our part in it. And the worst characterization on the part of others. And we do this all the time. But we read this in Deuteronomy 9 verse 20. Moses' intercession. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Praise God. God showed Aaron grace through the mediator. God's grace even for the dodger. God's grace even for the deflector. And that's all of us in this room this morning. We are all dodgers of guilt. We are all dodgers of blame. We all run for the trees. We cover ourselves with our own mechanisms. We all say it was her fault or his fault or their fault. And there is much grace even for that. As we think about evil being confronted, I so appreciated Brady Bradshaw's prayer this morning before we came in He mentioned how in his prayer, as he was praying to the Lord, how evil was confronted most especially at the cross. And that is the case as we're here this morning leaning into Christmas. As we think about why Jesus came, God poured out his wrath on evil, the evil of his people at the cross. That's why we celebrate Christmas is because that happened at Easter. And Paul says that very thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, where he says that God, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, listen to this, he condemned sin in the flesh. God confronted sin. 
God confronted evil where? In the body and in the mind and in the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he crushed his son for all of our dodging and deflecting and idolatry and leading other people astray. For all of our lack of courage, for all of our sin, he crushed his son so that we would live with him forever. Let's, let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are merciful to golden calf builders like us. Father, we praise you that your grace to your people is abounding all the more. That it is greater. That where sin reigned, grace reigned over it. And all of our enemies, the principalities and the powers and the heavenly places have been put under the feet of King Jesus who nailed our sins to the cross as he died. Lord, we praise you for this grace. We ask now, God, that we would live in holiness of life, not as idol worshipers, as self-vindicators, as those who lead others into pits. But Lord, that we would be those who live holy before your face. God, we thank you for the Lord's Supper, which we get to celebrate now. We pray that your spirit would guide us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.